All right. So we're back and still in our intro to civics course, you know, the one you probably took in third grade and maybe if you were lucky in some form in middle and high school and probably during those time periods didn't pay (laughs) enough attention to. Yeah, I will just interrupt and say not if we lived in the 60 percent of states that don't require students to take a civics exam as a graduation requirement, which is what we learned last episode. That's right. (laughs) Yes. The last episode about civics, which you should definitely listen to first. It's all about how our federal government works, was episode 203 called I'm Just a Bill. This episode, however, is going to be focused on all the states and our state government and get a little deeper into what our own state officials are doing and how we can all get involved more in our own governance. You know, I think it's really important to pause and acknowledge this for a second, because I know you're probably with us and being really really sick and tired of feeling like we can't make a difference or make positive change. And so I think what you just said is really important. We need to get ready and learn about civics on a state level, because it's something we need to know about, you know, when we want to learn about how it's not just those big federal elections and who's president that affects us. It's really so much about the local politics that affects each of us on a daily basis. And we can really make a difference here. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, where we model and normalize conversations about racism together as part of our work to help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. If you remember back in episode 203, we were talking about my favorite amendment to the Constitution, the 10th Amendment. Okay. It's one thing to know you love it, but what is it again? What does it say again? Sorry. I know, but you don't have this like memorized gold. Okay, so the 10th Amendment states the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited to it by the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So in other words, states have all powers not granted to the federal government by the Constitution. That one. I do remember this one now because I remember in that episode 203 being like, wait, we can't just standardize education in the states? Oh, the state's power. Yes, you've talked to me about this a lot. So I'm guessing based on the wording that you just shared, that states actually have a lot of individual power. Is that right? Yes, exactly. You know, states must take responsibility for areas such as, and we'll just name a few, ownership of property, education, as you mentioned, of its inhabitants, implementation of welfare and other benefits programs and distribution of aid. No, that's not federal. That's actually state. Interesting. Right. Protecting people from local threats, maintaining a justice system, setting up local governments such as counties and municipalities, maintaining state highways and setting up the means of administrating local roads, regulating industry and raising funds to support state specific activities. But there's an asterisk here because that's not to say that it's all the states and only the states who handle things like what I just said about maintaining state highways, for example, because those are divided between state, local and federal government responsibilities. So three different large groups. Most states classify roads into primary, secondary and local levels. And this system determines which government has to pay for and maintain roads. And most states also have departments of transportation, which oversee and administer intrastate transportation, which is within the state. U.S. highways and the interstate, which is between state systems, are administered by the federal government through the U.S. Department of Transportation. Okay. All right. I hear you. And I have an image in mind because it really sounds like while the states have a lot of say over a whole lot of areas of our lives, they do share some of those responsibilities with the federal government and the local government. 
And I'm picturing I live in Denver. And for the first time in the years and years that we've lived here, it has been so freaking cold that the snow has remained on the ground for weeks. Normally it dumps and then it gets to be 60 degrees and everything melts right away. It has been so cold. The snow has remained. And there are some roads that are totally clear. Like you mentioned, the interstate highways, totally clear. While others, local roads and that sort of stuff are sheets of ice, depending on how big the roads are. So I can see that this vision comes to mind when you talk about how these levels of government intersect. Can you tell me about other ways? Are there other ways that the different governments have to work together along the federal, state and local level? Yes. And first, you just described my nightmare scenario. But this is a great question. (laughs) Whatever, California. States must also administer mandates, which are set by the federal government. So in case you hear the word mandate, that's something coming from the federal government to the state. So generally, these mandates contain rules which the states wouldn't normally carry out. Right. For example, the federal government may require states to reduce air pollution, provide services for the disabled or require that public transportation must meet certain safety standards. And can we just pause and say, like, the states wouldn't do that themselves? That's fascinating. But it is interesting that the federal government has to step in and mandate certain standards. Well, not all states. Right. Because. Certain states, yes, I think we know this by now. And, you know, the federal government is prohibited by law from setting unfunded mandates. So in other words, the federal government has to provide funding for programs and mandates. And it's not just the federal government that can do mandates. It also can go from state to local levels. For example, the state can set certain education standards that local school districts must abide by. Florida, this is for you and all of that ridiculousness. Just saying. Or states can set rules calling for a specific administration of local landfills, for example. And then those were mandates, right? There are grants, which kind of work like mandates. So grants are an important tool used by the federal government to provide program funding to state and local governments. So according to the Office of Management and Budget, which is federal, federal outlays for grants to state and local governments increased from $91 billion in the fiscal year, which was 1980, And if you move that into 2013 dollars, which is where this information was from, that's about $224 billion to about $546 billion in fiscal year 2013. That's a huge increase, like double the grants. So what happened? Yeah. So let's keep in mind during that time frame, there was a boost in grants to help the country recover from the 2008 Great Recession. Remember the financial crisis. But overall, the largest part of these increases in federal funding to states is due to healthcare expenses, Medicaid, that sort of thing, also inflation. Now, keep in mind block grants, which are, you know, as they sound, give the states access to large sums of money with few specific limitations because the state must only meet the federal goals and standards. And the federal government can give the states either formula grants where they're given to anyone who meets certain guidelines like school lunches or airports or highways, or the most commonly issued type, which is called project grants. So these are basically what are given in response to those who make special requests for aid. That is actually really interesting, especially when you say follow the money. You know, that's what people always say. So I like that idea of understanding this in a lot more detail. So then moving on. Right. I know we were talking about the federal governments. We talked a lot about the Constitution with the capital C. States also have their local constitution or their state constitutions, right? 
Yes. And each state has its own constitution, which it uses as the basis for state laws, right? So all state governments are modeled after the federal government and consist of three branches, executive, legislative, and judicial. I remember those from episode 203. Do you? Uh, <laughs> quiz. Okay, go. And then, so the U.S. Constitution, that's the federal one, maintains that all states uphold a Republican form of government, which is one in which people govern through elections although the three-branch structure is not required. However, in basic structure, state constitutions much resemble that of the federal constitution, right? They contain a preamble, a bill of rights, articles that describe separation of powers between the those three branches that we just talked about, and a framework for setting up local governments. Okay. And when we talked about the capital C constitution, we talked about it wasn't perfect. There were amendments. In fact, there were 27 amendments. Is that similar for state constitutions? Huge yes, right? State constitutions make the federal constitution look concise because they also tend to be significantly more lengthy. State constitutions can contain as much as 174,000 words, which is Alabama, actually, and have as many as 513 amendments attached, also Alabama. And this is from several years ago, so that may be even more now. Much of this length is devoted to issues or areas of interest that are outdated, right? Because you keep amending over time, right? And you just add on more amendments. Oklahoma's constitution, for example, contains provisions that describe the correct temperature to test kerosene and oil. California has sections that describe everything that may be deemed tax exempt, including specific organizations and fruit and nut trees under four years of age. (laughs) Yes, we are super thorough in this state. I'll take my snow. And to your question on amendments, all state constitutions do provide for a way to amend the constitution. This process is usually initiated when the legislature proposes the amendment by a majority, which is, you know, 50 or sort of half plus one, or a supermajority, which is a special number of people and more than just a simple majority vote, right? After which the people approve the amendment through a majority vote. Amendments can also be proposed by a constitutional convention or in some states through an initiative petition. And that's a lot. That happens a lot in in Colorado, actually, the petitions, I think. So that's really interesting that there is huge variation, which is not surprising, but I'm glad there is an amendment process similar to the federal one. Can we talk a little bit about the governing bodies? Because I'm assuming you said state governments mirror federal ones. So we've got a legislative body. Yes. All states have a bicameral, which is a two-house legislature, except Nebraska, which has a unicameral or a single house. Legislative salaries range from nothing, actually, which is New Mexico, really, to a hundred, close to one hundred and twenty thousand, which is California per year, and this is in twenty twenty two dollars, right? In states where there is no official salary, legislators are often paid on a per diem basis. Again, New Mexico. However, there's a lot in the middle, right? New Hampshire legislators get $100 a year, no per diem. So yeah, you know, if you're doing the math, you're not retiring off your legislative salary in a lot of places or really in any place. So nobody can really hear my jaw dropping over here, but I just want to interrupt because those numbers really surprised me. Like we barely pay our leaders enough to get by. And so This is my amateur analysis or my amateur reaction. Let me know if you have any thoughts about this. But that means they're clearly either going to have to be independently wealthy already to be able to do this and therefore are detached from the needs and lives and lifestyle of the majority of the citizens in this country, or they've got to be distracted because they also have to hold down jobs too. Like I know they don't work the full year, but that means that 
they got to do piecemeal stuff, right? And so while you were talking, I looked it up and it turns out that our federal senators, right, the and the federal members of the U.S. House of Representatives in D.C., they make $174,000 a year and also have separate perks that keep them outside of the policies that they regulate on, right? Like they get 239 days off. They get huge discounts on healthcare that you and I wouldn't get. They get pensions. And again, that's for the federal level. And we're focusing on state today, which obviously I can't go into detail because there's 50 states. But I just find all of that very interesting that we elect people and that's what we're paying them. We're asking them to volunteer their time to do. Yeah, it's largely volunteer, right? If you look at sort of especially the lowest ends of that range, right? Mm hmm. Okay, so to circle back to the structure a little, besides basically volunteering your time in certain states, right, the structure, the legislative structure is otherwise much the same, right? The upper house is called the Senate. The membership can range from 21 in Delaware to 67 in Minnesota, and terms usually last for four years, which is different than federal senators, where the terms last for six, right? The lower house is called the House of Representatives or the General Assembly or the House of Delegates if you are Virginia. Membership can range from 40 members, which is sort of where Alaska and Nevada are, to apparently 400 in New Hampshire, and terms usually last two years, which is very similar to federal. And like the federal system, each house in a state legislature has a presiding officer. So instead of the vice president sort of presiding over the Senate on the federal level, you've got the lieutenant governor who does that in the Senate on the state level. And the majority of leader, though, assumes most of the leadership roles. So that's a little bit different. The House elects a speaker who serves as its leader. Think the Kevin McCarthy of your state legislature, hopefully slightly different. But anyway, leaders of each house are responsible for recognizing speakers in debate, referring bills to committee and presiding over deliberations. Okay. And I get that structure and the variation between the states. So thank you. Like, what do state legislators and legislatures do? Right. We hear a lot about federal law. But what about the state? Yeah, so that's a great question. States grant legislatures a variety of functions, right? They can enact laws, they can represent the needs of their constituents, they can share budget making responsibilities with the governor, and they can confirm nominations of state officials. And if there's ever an impeachment on a state level, the House begins the proceedings and the Senate conducts a trial that's very similar to federal. Legislatures also have an oversight role with regard to the executive branch through concepts like sunset litigation, which is legislation or sunset legislation, which is legislation that has a specific expiration or renewal date because of quickly changing landscapes like legislation surrounding tech, right, for example. Or this is something, a technique that's used to get more legislators on board because it's just temporary, right? In air, air quotes, quotes. <laughs> but that serves as a check for the executive, right? Because of the very temporary or expiring nature of what it is. Okay. I mean, so it's similar ish enough to the federal legislatures on the state level. Can we expand on it a little bit though? Cause you, we were talking about how everyday citizens can play a role and we can suggest bills to the representatives, right? We said that in episode 203. So does the same thing happen in state legislatures? Yeah. And perhaps even to a larger degree, because in many states, people, and I mean, you and me people, can perform legislative functions directly. And the ways by which these methods can be implemented vary, but, you know, they usually require a certain number of signatures on a petition, right? And I know petitions, I've seen that happen here in California. I'm sure you've seen that happen in Colorado. And after that, the issue is put on the ballot for a general vote, right? So some of the examples of how this shows up are initiatives, you know, what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is a way citizens can bypass the legislature and pass laws or amend the state constitution through a direct vote. 
Or sometimes it shows up as referendums, which is a way that citizens can approve of statutes or constitutional changes proposed by the legislature, but the citizens do this through a direct vote. Or, and if you're in California, you probably remember this fairly recently, a recall, which is a way citizens can remove elected officials from office. Recalls are allowed in 14 states and are typically rarely used. That's so funny because I was like, ooh, can we do that? Oh, no, just on a state level and even then not very many. Interesting. Okay, so that's the legislative branch. What about the executive branch? Like that's got to be where the governor kicks in, right? Yes, the governor is a state's chief executive. It can serve either a two or four year term. Thirty seven states have term limits on the governor, which makes me wonder what the other states are doing. But yes, that is a distinct difference between states. That's interesting. Okay, so tell me about what the governor does. Okay, so the governor does a lot, actually, which, you know, if you just see the governor at photo ops or sometimes when there's a disaster, right, it's very different than, I guess, their day-to-day job. So first, the governor is chiefly responsible for making appointments to state agencies and offices. So these powers include the ability to appoint people for specific posts in the executive branch and the ability to appoint people to fill a vacancy caused by the death or resignation of an elected official. The governor is also the chief of state or the chief executive. So he or she draws up the budget and also has, you know, clemency or pardon power and military powers. Speaking of powers like the our president, you know, on a federal level, a governor has the right to veto bills passed by the legislature, although a veto can be overridden by a two thirds or three fourths majority in the legislature. So it's kind of similar. Right. In many states, the governor also has the power of a line item veto, which basically allows the governor to veto particular items in budget appropriation bills. So that's really budget related. And in some states, the governor also has the power of an amendatory or conditional veto. Interesting. I had a question when you said military power. What military does the governor have access? Are there state like national reserve? Like, what does that mean? Yeah, there's the state level for sure. We have the National Guard, right? But we also have the state reserves, from what I understand. Okay, interesting. Cool. Thank you. It sounds like the governor holds a lot of power. I'm like doing these hand movements, like they're sort of parallel, but at a state level. And I remember that the executive branch at the federal level wasn't just the president's, like there's a body of people. So who else makes up the executive branch at a state level with the governor? Yeah, you're absolutely right in that it's not just the governor. But keep in mind, like when we're talking about the federal government, right, the president and the vice president are the only elected executive positions within the federal government. So this is where state governments differ, right? Because state governments have other positions that are elected separately from the governor, but which also reside in the executive branch. And you probably saw a lot of these listed on your ballot, right, this past November. So these include the following offices, right? Lieutenant governor. That is the person who's the head of the state Senate, succeeds the governor in office, and those are sort of the two main things that the lieutenant governor is known for. The secretary of state, who takes care of public records and documents, but may have many other responsibilities besides that, and that really depends on the state. There's also the attorney general, who is responsible for representing the state in all court cases. There is the state auditor, which makes sure that public money has been spent legally. There's a state treasurer who invests and pays out state funds. And then there's also the superintendent of public education who heads the state department of education. That is super helpful because I did see them on the ballot, but I didn't realize they were all in the executive branch. Yeah, me neither. Right. So when you also said that last couple of things about the auditor and treasurer, my brain sort of twigged, right? Like, That's about state money. So how does the state government get 
funded? Yeah. So great question. It's all about revenue, right? Because the government, Follow the go- money. <laughs> I know, right. A government's revenue system is the entire means by which a state government acquires funding and states rely on not shockingly a broad range of revenue sources to fund the government. So on how, what sources of revenue, right? On average, states generate more than one third of their revenues from personal income taxes and another one third from general sales taxes, right? So if you're in a state that doesn't charge income tax, for example, like your revenue stream looks different. The remaining revenues are split between, or if your state doesn't charge sales tax, right? There's a nut. So you have to think about how this looks for your own state, right? The remaining revenues are split between excise taxes, which are taxes on gas or cigarettes or alcohol, corporate income and franchise taxes, and taxes on business licenses, utilities, insurance premiums, severance, property, and several other sources. So that being said, right, all those sources, the general character of a state or state and local revenue system is more important than the nature of like any one of those things, right? So what I mean by that is the relative importance of the major revenue sources for state and local governments have really shifted since like the early 70s, because property taxes declined in importance at that point. And that share was picked up mostly by state individual income taxes and charges and miscellaneous revenues. And so since state revenue systems have sort of developed gradually, not surprisingly, and tax policy overall is used to address multiple objectives, that means that there can be a lot of inconsistencies in these state revenue systems because it's kind of an odd piecemeal approach that has changed and not over the decades. So that's interesting you just said that about how it shifted away in the 1970s away from property taxes, because I do know that property taxes usually, at least in the places I've lived, go primarily to fund public services like schools and police, libraries, fire protection, that sort of stuff. So if states are moving from like that and to revenue instead from individual income taxes and like, quote, other avenues. What are the other avenues? Yeah, great question. So first, there's insurance trust revenue, which relates to the money that the state takes in for administering programs such as retirement, unemployment compensation and other social insurance systems. All right. So the state gets paid for that. Then there are services and fees, which include items such as tolls. And once again, we sort of go back to things like liquor sales. Also, lottery ticket sales. I'll come back to that in a second. Income from college tuition, hospital charges and utility fees. On lotteries, specifically by 2011, 43 states and the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands had adopted some sort of gambling, mostly in the form of instant winner or drawing type lotteries. And about 1% of state revenue comes from gambling now over like on the average. So in other words, lotteries can be very profitable for the state and lottery profits, you know, Sarah, to your earlier point, have been used towards funding education, economic development and environmental programs. So 1% might not sound like a lot, but net income from state lotteries was over 17.75 billion. And that was in 2010. Holy cow. That's a lot. Okay. Right. And then like on top of all of that, there are state taxes, right? Which come in many different forms. And I sort of alluded to it before, but let's talk about it a little more in detail now. So most states have a sales tax, right? And that sales tax is assessed on most consumer goods in the state and ranges from, I don't know, 4% to basically 10% where I live in California, right? Most states also have a state income tax, similar to the one used by the federal government. And people can pay up to 16% of taxable income in state income taxes, and that might be low considering where we are now. 
Most states also have a progressive sales tax. About 37% of state tax revenue is obtained through the personal income tax, but you also have corporate income tax, which is assessed on corporate income, right? And that amounts to about 7% of state tax revenue. And then states levy taxes on motor fuels, right? Such as gasoline, diesel, and alcohol, which not surprisingly, most of those funds go towards financing roads and transportation within the state. You also have the cleverly named sin taxes, which apply to alcoholic beverages and tobacco products. Those taxes are named as such because they were originally intended to decrease consumption of these undesirable goods. And finally, most states also have inheritance taxes where a person pays a percentage of what he or she inherits from a deceased person. I never really thought about it. I really just thought about it as, wow, those are taxes that are levy, but I didn't actually think about where they were going. So that's really interesting. Obviously, a lot of ways the state makes money and the government can spend to support state initiatives. But we've heard a lot in the news about the federal government and the debt oh, right, yeah. right now, especially. So do state governments do the same sort of thing? Yeah, it's totally the same with the states. And it's a lot, right? By the end of 2022, the state government debt was guesstimated to be at $1.22 trillion. Yes, trillion dollars. New York had the highest debt of any state with total debt of over $203.77 billion. New York's total assets are around $107 billion, roughly, giving the state a debt ratio of close to 274%. That's not a good percent. But an important difference is that unlike the federal government, as we're going to see yet again in very stark detail, or maybe catastrophically not, many states are required to balance their budget through their state constitutions. Apparently not New York but maybe the other states. And that does just really seem like another issue that needs to be looked at if we as a country, you know, want to be financially and fiscally responsible. But that is going to be a whole other conversation for another time. What else do states governments do that we haven't touched on yet? There's one big category left, and it's perhaps one that has been in the news a lot recently. Again, thank you, Florida, and particularly Ron DeSantis. Yep, oh. that's education. In fact, it's one of the largest issue areas left to the discretion of the states. The United States public education system is administered mostly on the state and local levels. And the local side, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, on the state side, elementary and secondary schools receive funding from all the different levels of government. And I have to include local here just for a little bit. About 8% from the federal government, 5% from state government, and 42% from local governments. So when you think about where your tax money goes, you know, you were talking about property tax. It's actually a lot of that funding has been channeled very differently, as we were just talking about. State and local governments put more money towards education than any other cost. There are about 15,000 school districts around the country, each governed by its own school board. The people of the district vote the members of the school board into office. And we'll go into that in the local Civics 103. Generally, about 15 to 30 percent of the local electorate participate in a typical school board election. So some roles of the school board include administering general district policy, making sure the district is in tune with local interests, and hiring or firing the superintendent. And who's the superintendent? He or she is the head administrator within a district whose responsibilities include drafting the budget, overseeing the principles of schools within the district, general administration within the district, and communication with the chief state school official. 
the chief state school official is appointed by the governor. So this is the state part of it. And along with other state education positions, has a lot of responsibilities, which include distributing state funds, establishing teacher certification requirements, setting the length of the school day, defining the nutritional content of school lunches, and mandating certain curricula for schools and setting the school calendar. I mean, what I hear you saying is that education is a priority of the state and that there are a few key people who like dotted through with a system who can really control a lot of what and how our children learn. And that makes me really think about the role that individual people can and should play in our state and why these school board elections, for example, are so important. And also why we absolutely need to pay attention to the values and platforms of our school superintendents. But what I also loved about this deeper dive into our state government is, again, the role that we as residents of the state can play. I mean, to start, since personally, I find it kind of intimidating to think about, like, let me just propose an initiative. Let me go to a town hall. I guess you can go to committee hearings. Or I just recently learned that some of them even broadcast committee hearings online. So you can listen to them from home and get a sense of the flow and the structure and the people involved. You can check your local officials' websites to see the next time they're in a town near you, unless, like me, you live in the state's capital. We can call our representatives, of course, and eventually you can actually create, like I said, those initiatives. We can get our voices out there in ways that really don't necessarily always have to involve our representative, too. So that may be something we want to keep in mind if we feel like our representatives don't have our collective best interests in mind. Yeah, that's totally right. And I love that you said that and the emphasis on our personal ability to do something. And what I would say also is this. If any of the information that we presented just now is new to you or you've never really thought about how state government works, because I can tell you I didn't have not thought about how state government works at quite this level, this is your chance to not only get more knowledge, but to get more involved. If there is an issue that relates to your state that's important to you. And we really think that there's at least one issue for every person, like there's something you care about. So really pause for a moment here and think about and write down you know, if you were asked, what do you care about? What would move you to tears? What would make you really enraged or otherwise provoke some sort of reaction in you? Like, that's a good sign to know what you care about. So what is that for you? Yes. And then take that and go talk to your state representatives, right? And then you can physically go talk to them if you're in the Capitol, right? But otherwise, there are so many ways to reach out because you really want to think about that issue and what initiatives can you put forward. And you also really want to read and discuss every election cycle because you want to be an informed voter. And maybe you really need to be educated not only on people and who are those people who will be representing you, but on issues that citizens like you can directly impact, such as referendums, right? Pay attention to the rare recall and issues put forward there, especially by the groups on either side, because that tells you a lot about other interests in the state. And most importantly, if you have children or care about children's education and have the opportunity to attend school board meetings or run for school board, that's how you can perhaps make the most impact in that sphere. I love that. You know, we're going to be re-releasing one of our episodes that'll go more into this, the role that school boards and states have in banned books, in curriculum, and so much more. So be on the lookout for that episode next. Folks, this is a year of doing. So get out there and make your voice heard. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>